This is Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. We're off today, so please enjoy this encore broadcast recorded on August 24th, 2022. This is the clearest, this is the strongest piece of evidence yet to suggest that the national political climate has shifted away from a Republican advantage that gives Democrats a chance, certainly at holding on to the Senate, potentially to holding on to the House of Representatives. Huh. Interesting. Who could have predicted it for months and months and months? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Oh, yeah, that was me. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM People Powered Radio in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN in Palinville, New York on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Right here alongside the delightful Desi Doyen. Got those tech problems worked out there, Desiree? Yes. Okay, good. Glad to hear it. Uh, all right, there was a, a, a bit of a, a political earthquake out of New York on Tuesday, which we will get to shortly, including with my guest coming up in a bit, who even before a stunning win for uh, Democrats in a special U.S. House election in New York that by all rights, they should have lost on Tuesday... Even before that, my guest was finding some very interesting clues for this year's elections amid voter registration data. Uh, that guest with that data will join me shortly. I think you'll find it very interesting. As to the overall elections on Tuesday... Happily, there are still few notable problems reported for either voters or computer tallies from Tuesday's primary and and special U.S. House uh, elections. There was two of them, actually. Uh, but primaries and special elections in three states as the primary season begins to wind down. Finally, thankfully, just two more such days, by the way, left this year, both of them next month. 
Uh, now, it's early yet after Tuesday's Election Day, especially for New York and Florida, which are both states notorious for various voting and voting system failures and boondoggles, or as they call them in the media, snafus. <laughs> or glitches. Snags. Hiccups. Anything but failure. But for now, uh, with no major disasters uh, yet coming to light, uh, we can focus for the moment on the reported, if still wholly unverified, computer tallied results from Tuesday coming out of uh, both uh, New York and Florida and, yes, Oklahoma, which held runoff elections in two different U.S. Senate races on Tuesday. So let's start there, since it is the quickest in our still totally unverified, highly curated wholly incomplete and arguably very unsatisfying rundown <laughs> of several noteworthy results in all three of those states. Um, tr starting in Oklahoma, Trump backed 2020 election denialist Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen easily defeated T.W. Shannon in a runoff primary election for the GOP nomination to fill the U.S. Senate seat being vacated by Desi's favorite Republican <laughs> senator and dean of the GOP Climate Change Denial Caucus. That would be 87-year-old James Inhofe, who is retiring. Don't let the screen door hit you on the way out. Kiddo. So mean. You're so mean <laughs> to this uh, he, a man who has given so many years of service to this country. In any event, uh, Mullen, uh, who won the race, will face uh, Democratic nominee Kendra Horn, along with an independent and a libertarian this November. But it's Oklahoma. They haven't elected a Democrat to Congress in more than 30 years. So unless Mark Wayne Mullen, I don't know, guns down a class of first graders in Tulsa between now and November, which, you know, isn't all that impossible for a Trump loyalist, uh, and at this point may not actually be disqualifying for him. Not among Republicans, at least. Correct. Uh, well, it's Oklahoma. So in any event, uh, he is most likely to be the uh, next new U.S. senator uh, from the state. And in a separate runoff for the state's other U.S. Senate seat, currently filled by Republican incumbent James Lankford, who is running again, cybersecurity expert Madison Horn. Yes, Madison Horn, uh, who is not related to Kendra Horn, the Democrat running in the special U.S. Senate election for the state's other U.S. Senate seat this year in Oklahoma. Madison Horn defeated Oklahoma City Attorney Jason Bollinger to challenge Senator Lankford this November. But remember, again... It's Oklahoma. Nonetheless, get busy, voters. You never know, especially in a year like this one. You can't uh, win if you don't vote. There you go. In Florida, meanwhile, former Republican governor, now Democratic Congressman Charlie Crist, easily defeated Florida State Ag Commissioner Nikki Freed to challenge incumbent Republican Governor Ron DeSantis this November. Crist touted his... Moderate credentials in the purple state against Freed, uh, the only Democrat elected, by the way, in the Sunshine State, uh, currently holding statewide office, Nikki Freed. Uh, she sold herself as something new against Christ in her hopes of taking on DeSantis, who, by the way, barely won his first election by less than half a percentage point. 
in 2018. Uh, but uh, he is now, of course, seen as the uh, favorite to win the uh, GOP nomination for president in 2024 if Donald Trump ends up not running for any of many reasons. DeSantis uh, ran uncontested for his own Republican nomination for governor. Both Christ and Freed, by the way, were interviewed last year on this program by our guest host, Nicole Sandler. You can find those interviews in the uh, bradblog.com archives. On Tuesday night, after conceding defeat, Freed tweeted out, quote, We have to make Ron DeSantis a one-term governor, and now that means rallying behind Charlie Crist. So contrast that with some of the losers on the GOP side on Tuesday who are you know, predictably claiming they only lost because of fraud. Which is fine, of course, but it uh, may not result in GOP party unity heading into November, which signs are now suggesting they could probably use this fall. Congresswoman Val Demings easily won her Democratic primary nomination for the U.S. Senate general election to run against Republican Senator Marco Rubio. He ran uncontested on Tuesday. Recent polling has uh, in this race has sort of freaked out uh, Florida and national Republicans as Demings, who would be the first African-American senator to to uh, represent the Sunshine State was recently found by the University of North Florida poll to be leading Rubio in that race by four points, which seems kind of remarkable to me. Uh, And for now, it is just one poll, if a well-respected one. But it has kind of freaked out Republicans who are already looking at a number of what should have been easy Senate wins elsewhere that appear now to be slipping away from them in states like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, even North Carolina, all of which we'll discuss with my guest momentarily. So that's uh, one to keep your eyes on for sure. And good reason to get out and uh, register to vote in Florida if you haven't already. And also make sure that your registration is still valid and keep checking it as you go because Florida Republicans have a really good habit of knocking people off the rolls right before an election. Yep, yep. Yep. Keep your eyes on it if you're in Florida. Frankly, good advice everywhere, but especially in Florida. Congressman Matt Gates of Florida, who was endorsed, of course, by Donald Trump, even as Gates is currently under federal investigation for sex trafficking with a minor, perhaps especially because Gates is under that investigation. <laughs> he won Trump's endorsement. I don't know. Anyway, he easily won his GOP primary despite that. Uh, he defeated the Marine Corvette Mark Lombardo in Florida's first congressional district. But that's in the panhandle area of the state. Donald Trump carried it by more than 33 points in 2020. So I guess we shouldn't be surprised by any of this. Aside from the sex trafficking with a minor allegation, Matt Gates is also said to have asked then President Trump for a broad preemptive pardon before Trump left office. I suppose to his credit, uh, Trump did not grant that. To uh, Matt Gates, who will uh, now run against Democrat Rebecca Jones. Does that name ring a bell? It does not. Uh, she is the state's well-regarded COVID dashboard administrator oh. turned whistleblower who was fired from her job by Governor Ron DeSantis after she says she refused to fake the state's COVID numbers 
on the state's COVID dashboard as she was being directed by uh, higher up officials. Now she's running for Congress against Matt Gates. Could be an interesting race. Most definitely. Great news for progressives and Democratic Gen Zers who are now likely to have their very own first member of Congress this fall. Maxwell Frost, a Bernie Sanders-backed 25-year-old community organizer, won his primary against a whole bunch of veteran Democrats looking to fill Congresswoman Val Demings' seat as she is now running for the Senate. Earlier this summer, ahead of the primary, Frost, a gun violence prevention activist, disrupted a right-wing talk show host, uh, a talk show uh, that was hosted by our friend, formerly apparently fake progressive Dave Rubin's oh, show, yeah. as he was uh, interviewing <laughs> Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. <laughs> Frost uh, interrupted this uh, public interview with calls to end gun violence. That generated a lot of buzz for him. In addition to fighting for gun safety, he's also advocated uh, abortion rights and voting rights with the ACLU of Florida. And in the uh, Democratic South Florida district where he's running, he is likely now to become a new member of the House in this uh, this November. Moving to New York, which only held their congressional primaries on Tuesday after a court battle over Democratic redistricting in the Empire State uh, had delayed the House primaries. All the other ones were done a few weeks ago in a uh, Dem, Dem incumbent versus Dem incumbent race between two senior Democratic congressional incumbents. Congressman Jerry Nadler, chair of the House Judiciary Committee and member of the House since winning a special House election in 1992, defeated Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, chair of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, and herself a House member since 1993. So I guess uh, Nadler had a few months seniority there. But Nadler defeated Maloney in a, a race that, due to the redistricting process, ended up merging the cores of each of their respective districts along the Upper East Side and the Upper West Sides of Manhattan, resulting in a very contentious race between the two House Democratic stalwarts. Nadler sold himself as more progressive than Maloney by touting several votes differentiating him from her. For example, he voted against the Patriot Act more than a decade ago and the Iraq War. <laughs> Gotta go way back. Way back. Uh, and he voted in favor, uh, more recently, in favor of the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. Maloney, in her case, voted the other way. In all of those uh, issues, Nadler ended up easily winning in what will be a solid Democratic district this year. So Nadler will almost certainly be reelected in November. Representative Sean Patrick Maloney, the chair of the House Democratic Campaign Committee, or the DCCC, which is despised by many a progressive, well, he was able to fend off a challenge from progressive state senator Alessandra Biaggi, who had been endorsed by fellow New Yorker Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the Liberal Working Families Party and Democracy for America. That in New York's 17th district. As The Hill reports, Maloney's decision to run in the redrawn 17th district rather than his current 18th was a controversial decision. It would have pitted the chair of the DCCC, who is tasked with electing more Democrats, against the first-term progressive 
Congressman Mondaire Jones, who currently represents the district. But Jones ended up opting to run instead in the 10th district, which offered a rare open seat. Uh, He was hoping to avoid an awkward member on member primary, but that may have been a mistake. Mm. For Jones, uh, who ended up running with at least three other progressive candidates for the nomination in the 10th district in a contest with 13 candidates for that rare open seat in New York. The uh, progressives, they all ran against the well-funded Dan Goldman, a former federal prosecutor who happens to be a Levi Strauss heir with a personal net worth of some $250 million dollars four of which he poured into the New York 10 race while also receiving a whole bunch of outside help from dark money super PACs. You would uh, recognize Goldman most likely as the lead majority counsel in the first impeachment inquiry against Donald Trump and the lead counsel to House managers in the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Though the uh, main progressive candidates got the votes collectively of of about 60 percent of the electorate in the district, Goldman was able to take the nomination with just over 25 percent of the total vote as of this hour. Yu Lin Neo, whose name I'm probably screwing up, uh, looks set to come in a close second to Goldman after all of the progressives refused to drop out in order to clear the path for any one of them who likely would have won. Neo is down by just 1,500 votes or so as of now. Mail-in ballots sent by Election Day in New York still have seven days to show up, so we'll see if that changes. But for now, it looks like Goldman is going to Congress. And then there were two U.S. House special elections in New York on Tuesday, not primaries, but actual elections. A special U.S. House election in New York's 23rd Congressional District in a very Trumpy area of the state was won by Joseph Sempolinsky. He will uh, serve the remainder of former Congressman Tom Reed's term after Reed resigned in May following allegations of sexual misconduct. In 2020, Reed won that district by 17 points. But on Tuesday, in the special election to replace him, the Republican Sempolinsky, he won by just six and a half points. Hmm. So a 10-point loss for Republicans in a Trump district in what was supposed to have been a banner year for Republicans. We have been told that for months, haven't we? Uh, more on that in a moment, uh, because uh, in, in what many saw as the real bellwether race for the fall in a fairly conservative district uh, in New York, which Joe Biden won by about two points in 2020 after Trump carried it four years earlier, Republican Mark Molinaro squared off against Democrat Pat Ryan to fill the seat vacated by Congressman Antonio Delgado. He stepped aside to become New York's lieutenant governor. The winner of this race will serve for only a few months, and then uh, both of those uh, men will run in different districts under the state's reapportionment. But on Tuesday night, in what Republicans had cast as a referendum on Joe Biden and inflation, well, the Democrat Ryan 
was galvanizing voters behind threats to abortion rights and personal freedoms, and yes, that worked to defeat Molinaro. Quote, if the Republicans lose this special election, said Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney, the head of the DCCC, uh, he said this on Monday, it will be an earthquake. And, he said, further evidence that, like Kansas, New York voters are holding them accountable for taking away reproductive freedom. Maloney said the win should have been an easy one for Republicans, given what they spent on the race, and they spent a lot. Meanwhile, Ryan's campaign signs that were successful, apparently, read, quote, choice is on the ballot. Apparently, that worked. In fact, Republicans lost the special election in New York's 19th district while running a not insane and fairly well-respected county-level elected official who had run for statewide office back in 2018. And though he was trounced statewide that year, which was a good year for Democrats, Molinaro did manage even then to win the 19th district in what was otherwise a very good year for Democrats. So he won it in 2018. He did not win it in 2022. What happened here? Yes, choice and freedom were on the ballot as the uh, Democrat framed it, but that's not the only clue now available for Democrats to consider as the midterms in which they were supposed to lose by huge numbers this year and still could. But now those midterms are just 70 days away. Tom Bonnier, who heads a Democratic data research firm, has spotted something else amid new data that is just becoming available this year. And it may be very good news indeed for Democrats and, yes, democracy this fall. Tom Bonnier joins me next to the broadcast to explain. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Hey, this is Brad. You're listening to an encore presentation of the Bradcast. There's something happening here. But it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Yes, please do Look what's going down. Something is happening here. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. It is not exactly clear, but it may be coming more so uh, by the hour. A victory in a bellwether house district in New York's Hudson Valley, as NBC News' Sahil Kapoor reported on Tuesday night, gives fresh hope today 
to Democrats ahead of what has been seen as a daunting 2022 midterm election and raises questions for Republicans who have been expecting a so-called red wave this fall. Democrat Pat Ryan won the hotly contested special election on Tuesday, defeating Republican Mark Molinaro for a House seat in the state's 19th district, which opened up when Democratic Congressman Antonio Delgado stepped aside to become New York's lieutenant governor. The outcome, NBC contends, in this swingiest of swing districts reveals the power of Democratic messaging on abortion. Ryan had put the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade front and center to try to galvanize his party's voters to get to the polls while drawing on his military service to argue that fighting for American freedom means protecting reproductive rights. That message, again, in what is likely to be a preview of similar races across the country, was pitted against the Republican message carried by Molinaro that the election is a referendum on President Joe Biden, economic pain due to inflation and crime. Molinaro also ran as a uh, check on, quote, one party rule by Democrats in Washington, which Republicans have long seen as a winning pitch on Tuesday morning, Election Day. He urged, Molinaro did, he urged his voters to show up and send a message to Washington. Well, a message was sent. Uh, I think it just was not necessarily the message that Molinaro had in mind. As uh, Sahil notes at NBC, the 19th district in Hudson Valley has tracked along with the national mood for years. It voted for Biden by about two points in 2020 after voting for Donald Trump. And then Barack Obama before that in their presidential campaigns in the years prior. It was a Republican held House district until it flipped to Democrats in the 2018 blue wave election in 2010 or 2014. Uh, uh, Sahil writes the last two midterm elections when a Democrat held the White House and subsequently saw red waves in the fall. Democratic candidates would likely have had no chance to win a special election at this time of the year in this sort of a district. Yet on Tuesday night, Ryan did not by a lot, by a little over two points as of now, with some 95 percent of the results in as of airtime and a fairly healthy 5000 votes separating the two candidates. The Democrat, Ryan, managed to overcome the perceived historical headwinds and won. He, as I have been warning listeners for months and months now, ignored so-called conventional wisdom in these decidedly unconventional times. And he ended up winning when history suggests he should not have. Why? Well, he said choice was on the ballot, freedom was on the ballot, and tonight, choice and freedom won. He argued that on Tuesday night, repeating his very clear campaign message while declaring victory, adding, we voted like our democracy was on the line because it is. And while a lot of the coverage of this race that I've seen last night and uh, this morning has focused on him uh, you know, taking on abortion rights front and center. He also discussed democracy rights, as he mentioned in his uh, victory address on Tuesday night. We got in this race because the foundations of our democracy were and remain under direct threat. And that is deadly serious. And the moment that we're out in our country, 
It is not hyperbole to say democracy literally on the line. Now, if Ryan's performance on Tuesday is replicated by Democratic candidates this fall, NBC argues, it means control of Congress is still up for grabs. You think? So, yeah, this is only one election, so it would be a mistake to make too much of it. But now we actually have a pretty clear pattern in about six different special U.S. House elections all across the country in recent months this year in California, Texas, Nebraska, Minnesota and New York, which may be telling a story worth noting. I will ask my guest momentarily. Uh, among other things, if he agrees on that point. But we have now seen four special elections since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in their Dobbs decision in June. And in all four of them, Republicans have underperformed Trump's 2020 margins in those same jurisdictions, while Democrats have overperformed or equaled Biden's. By contrast, before the Dobbs decision, Republicans were the ones who were overperforming 2020 in those special elections. So, uh, you know, what happened in New York last night in the um, well, there was two special House elections, actually one in the very Trumpy 23rd congressional district. Uh, In New York, the Republican there underperformed Trump's 2020 victory by four points. And in the very swingy and evenly divided 19th district, where Biden won by two points, the Democratic candidate Pat Ryan, in what should have been an easy pre-red wave win for election for uh, Republicans, if there was going to be one this fall, well, he won by the same margin that Joe Biden did two years ago. That's by way of contrast with the special elections prior to the Dobbs decision overturning Roe, when Republicans were not only winning, but they were gaining on uh, Trump's margin from 2020 by anywhere from 10 to 20 points. In a statement congratulating Ryan, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee Chair Sean Patrick Maloney said Ryan's victory, quote, sends a clear message that voters voters are fighting back against Republicans' extreme attacks on abortion rights. He said Republicans can say goodbye to their red wave because voters are clearly coming out in force to elect a pro-choice majority to Congress this November. He did not mention democracy on the ballot in that statement. Nonetheless, it wouldn't be the first time that Maloney, as chair of the DCCC, was leaning a little too far out over his skis, if in fact he was. But there is now more and more evidence that, yes, While things have been looking good for pickups in the U.S. Senate for Democrats, the House really could be in play as well this year, even if Democrats will have to overcome a lot of Republican gerrymandering to get there and to hold on to their currently very narrow majority margin. Tom Bonier of the data firm Target Smart has been on a bit of a tear on Twitter over the past week, poring over New registration data, new voter registration data from around the country, particularly in several battleground states. And he may have hit upon a telling pattern himself this year. 
that he seems pretty hyped about on Twitter. Uh, Wow, he tweeted late last week. I've been sharing data showing a huge surge in women registering to vote since the uh, June 24 Dobbs decision. I just started to look at some age and party breakdowns of these new registrants, and he says the numbers are jaw-dropping. Well, let's see if he can drop our jaws as well. Tom Bonier is CEO of Target Smart, a leading Democratic data solutions firm providing political data for campaigns and advocacy groups. He's also a lecturer at Howard University, a co-founder of Clarity Campaign, which is a campaign data analytics firm, and I should note a union member in good standing at SEIU Local 500 in Maryland, Virginia, and D.C. Oh, Mr. Bond, you're welcome to the broadcast, sir. It's great to be here. I, I want to hit some of the uh, numbers that you have been finding in these key battleground states like Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Ohio, all of which have important U.S. Senate races this year where Democrats' chances to f- flip three Republican seats appear to be getting better and better by the day. But let me, uh, let's me let talk first about what we learned or didn't learn in New York on Tuesday night, particularly in that 19th district special election, uh, as I, I know you have been looking at as well and, and tweeting about that race today. What do you make of it? Is my uh, description uh, on or off base? I, I think you're exactly on base when you talk about this district this is exactly the kind of district that republicans have to win if they want to take back the house and frankly had we looked at this district a couple of months ago i think it's a district that we would say republicans absolutely would win given the the national climate given the fact that this is a midterm election and we know that the party that is not in the white house Mm -hmm. in these midterm elections tends to win easily they don't just win if you look at the half century the past half century Mm -hmm. The party out of power, out of the White House in these midterm elections, has won the national House vote on average by almost seven points, which is a landslide margin. So you look at this seat as a very competitive seat, and the fact that the Republican candidate, frankly, isn't that indicative of the typical Republican candidate winning primaries or being recruited to run in these mm. states, meaning he's not Dr. Oz. Well, he's not he's crazy. Elected. He was a, no, he's not crazy. A, a strong he, he, candidate. That's right. Very strong candidate. One of their their strongest recruits. And the fact that he still uh, ran, as you said, basically even with Trump, running even with Trump won't do it for Republicans. Underperforming Trump certainly won't do it for Republicans this time around. They need to overperform Trump. And again, historical precedent would suggest, Mm -hmm. along with gerrymandering, all all the structural advantages that Republicans enjoy uh, going into this election, would suggest that it should be relatively easy for them to uh, to outperform Trump. But the fact is, as you noted, not just in this district, but most notably in this district, they failed to do that. So what do you and, to, to and, what do you attribute problematic. that? What, what do you attribute that loss in uh, New York for the Republicans in a district they should have won by all historic measures? Well, you, you know, Dobbs is at the top of the list. I, th- there's there are several things. Uh, you know, the, the Dobbs decision on mm-hmm. June 24th um, is a big big part of that, and we'll talk more about that, I'm sure, Mm -hmm. but there's a general theme here of Republicans being far out of step with mainstream America. And, you know, I think the January 6th hearings, as they began in prime time uh, Mm -hmm. uh, several weeks ago, were an initial reminder of that. Obviously, the Dobbs decision, uh, the raid on Mar-a-Lago, 
and just frankly the the lack of any sort of coherent or, or cohesive message from Republicans mm-hmm. at this point. I think they their playbook is something that we've seen every election since Trump uh, entered the national stage in 2016 which is to run a culture war campaign. And, you know, to be frank, that's worked with them sometimes. Mm -hmm. But this year, the culture war is very much about choice. And that's not something that's advantageous to Republicans. At least since the uh, Dobbs decision, you heard the uh, numbers that I mentioned in the various special House elections in California, Texas, Nebraska, Minnesota, uh, and now New York, uh, both immediately before and then since the Dobbs decision overturning Roe. That's six different House elections in all kinds of states and districts. But before Dobbs, they all showed huge gains for Republicans. And after, they all moved uh, four of them essentially essentially, in the, in the direction of Democrats. Six elections, that seems like a fairly decent sample size, uh, at least for tea leaf reading. What, what should or should we not take away from, the, from, the, from that? Well, you know, you mentioned how I referred to some of this data as jaw-dropping, and mm-hmm. I do have to say that I'm not one that's generally prone to hyperbole. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in my job, I analyze data. Uh, and generally, when you're analyzing election data, you generally don't see variations that, from the norm, mm-hmm. from the past historical precedent, that are really that substantial. We tend to get excited about those that will vary from the historical norm by, you know, four or five or six points. Mm-hmm. And then Kansas happened. And and I, I think like most Americans who follow politics, even casually, uh, you know, I have to admit to being surprised by it. I think everyone was. The fact that that ballot initiative that the pro-choice position succeeded by almost 20 points in um, red state Kansas, mm-hmm. uh, for me, meant I had to rethink about how mm-hmm. I was looking at this election. And I think that was the case for, for most election analysts. And the biggest question was why, how and why was that happening? And so in Kansas, as, as, as you've talked about uh, before, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of that was driven by women. Women registering to vote, huge margin, 70% of the voters who registered to vote in Kansas after the June 24th Dobbs decision, 70% were women. I've never seen anything even approaching uh, that degree of gender gap. It just doesn't happen. Uh, so, So there was that, and obviously looking at turnout among women. And so, you know, for us, that inspired us to begin looking at other states and so when we talk about, you know, why is this happening, mm-hmm. and you mentioned sample size, we're at the point now where we have enough states and we have enough of these elections where uh-huh. it's clear, the thing that we can clearly say at this point is that women voters are more energized heading into this election than any precedent I'm aware of, which would cover at least the last uh, few decades. Uh, and it makes sense uh, in the end, in mm-hmm. this political world where it seems like a lot doesn't make sense lately, this is something that makes sense. I mean, we, we don't have an election. As election analysts, we tend to depend on past precedent mm-hmm. for our projections mm-hmm. and any prognostication. And the fact is, there isn't a good precedent for this election. And we don't have an election where a 50-year uh, uh, Supreme Court landmark decision has been overturned mm-hmm. and, and Americans have lost a civil right like they have in this Dobbs decision. And so these precedents aren't 
frankly, that helpful. Well, thank you for saying so, because I've been trying to make that argument for many, many months. While there have been a lot of uh, the experts on TV, you know, just citing history, oh, Democrats are going to take a shellacking this year. There's not only the Dobbs decision, there's all sorts of other things, of course. We've never had a former president who is, you know, trying to outrun uh, law enforcement at this point. You know, and this is one thing after another that we have never really seen before. So let's jump into some of those other states that uh, you got excited about on Twitter this week as you were looking at more specifics uh, while reviewing new voter registration data. First in Pennsylvania, where Democratic Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman appears to be pulling away now from Republican Trump-backed TV doctor uh, Mehmet Oz in the race to fill the U.S. Senate seat, currently held by retiring Republican Pat Toomey. Uh, What did you find that dropped your jaw there when looking at that uh, registration, voter registration data? Well, you know, similar to what we've seen in these other states, um, women, when you look at the new registrants, and the reason we look at new registrants, by the way, is Mm -hmm. because it's a great indicator of intensity. There's two factors there. One is new registrants or people are likely to turn out in the election. But to be clear, you know, most of the people who vote in any election will be people who were already registered to vote long Mm -hmm. before the election. So it's not the new registrants by themselves will swing the election, but it is a reliable indicator of which groups are really fired up about voting, and that's what's going to decide this election. And so Pennsylvania, we saw that when you look at those new registrants since June 24th, a little bit more than 56% of those new registrants were women. So that's a a greater than 12-point gender gap in a state that's about a 50-50 state, women and men. Mm -hmm. But that's not it. It's not just that it's women registering to vote. When you look at who those women are, they're overwhelmingly younger women and Democrats. Among those new women registrants, four to one margin, Democrats or Republicans. Sixty-two wow. percent of those women who have registered to vote are Democrats, 15 percent Republicans. And over half of them, 54 percent of them are under the age of 25. Mm. You compare that to men who mm-hmm. registered to vote in the same time period, uh, and they're still leaning Democrat. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, there are men who are being compelled to come out on this issue, but just not nearly the degree to which mm-hmm. women are. But 41% of, of the men who registered to vote were Democrats, about a 15-point advantage over Republicans, and 40, 40, uh, 40% were under the age of 25. Uh, so again, they're younger they're more likely to be Democrats, but when you look at the women, just overwhelmingly Demo- young Democratic women mm-hmm. being engaged. You mentioned the Senate race there, which again, you know, as you said, Lieutenant Government uh, Governor Fetterman appears to be pulling away at this point, but there's still the governor's race there that'll be so critically important um, uh-huh. for a lot of reasons. And, you know, this could have a significant impact on that race as well. Yeah. And looking at your numbers, there is a very stark difference pre-Dobbs and post-Dobbs. Post-Dobbs, just overall uh, 30 percent increase in Democratic registrations after uh, uh, before Dobbs, that number was only 4 percent. So clearly... That just spiked with that Supreme Court decision. You mentioned the governor's race, but has uh, so these are statewide numbers, I presume. Has Target Smart been able yes. to dig down deep enough to get any sense of how those numbers may affect congressional races in, in Pennsylvania and elsewhere? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the cool thing about the data we collect is it's based on individual level data. It's based on public data uh, from the State Board of Elections. And so when they produce new registration files and they give us lists of these are the new registered voters, we have the ability to aggregate those um, really at any level of geography. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot of digging to be done there as we look at this state by state and district by district, but we have looked at the congressional districts in Pennsylvania, and we are seeing the same pattern an actually slightly pronounced pattern mm. in these more competitive or potentially competitive congressional districts, which, you know, as we know, given that the margin in the House is so narrow, yeah. and that given the, Repu- the Republicans have such structural advantages uh, because of gerrymandering, because of voter suppression, because of different elements, it'll, it'll still take a stronger wind at Democrats' back to be able to hold on to the House. Uh, let's hit some of these other states. North Carolina, which, uh, speaking of, uh, you know, <laughs> battlegrounds, I mean, this is the g- closest divided state, perhaps, in the Union over the past uh, decade or so. Uh, but it has been leaning more and more red of late. But incredibly enough, uh, a U.S. Senate seat that did not even seem to come on the radar uh, until recently. Democratic uh, candidate Sherry Beasley She's now leading Trump-backed Ted Budd in some recent polling, according to 538's poll-based forecast, uh, though she is still down by a few points in the more right-wing, real-clear politics average. But here, too, you find very interesting new registration data. What do you have in North Carolina? Yeah, Brett, we're seeing a similar trend in North Carolina as we've seen in these other states, Pennsylvania, New York, uh, and elsewhere, in that... Uh, the new registrants are leaning women, but similarly, there's a partisan swing, meaning we looked at those who have registered to vote in 2022 prior to June 24th when the Dobbs decision was handed down, and Republicans had a one-point advantage uh, among those new registrants. Mm-hmm. Since Dobbs, that shifted to a five-point Democratic advantage. So again, it's a similar indicator just showing a big swing in intensity. Again, this is being driven by younger women primarily, mm-hmm. though not exclusively. Then there is uh, the, one, the one you described on Twitter yesterday with an exclamation mark. Ohio, where the, uh, where the Trump-backed uh, U.S. Senate candidate, author J.D. Vance, is said to be struggling against moderate Democratic candidate Tim Ryan to fill the Senate seat being vacated by retiring Republican Rob Portman. Why the Ohio exclamation? Well, you know, Ohio is a race that I think perhaps wasn't on the national radar, at mm-hmm. least from the prognosticator's position. And I think there was a, a, a calculation by J.D. Vance that he could uh, hew as far to the right as possible to not only win the primary, but stay there and follow the Trump model in the general election. And there, there, there is data at this point now suggesting that that might be a miscalculation. Uh, so the gender gap in new registrants since Dobbs in Ohio is 11 points mm-hmm. um, uh, towards women, uh, mm-hmm. which is, again, uh, substantial. When you look at prior elections, you look at 2018, mm-hmm. 2020, mm-hmm. and the last election, the new registrants were actually more men by 1.5 huh. margin. So this is a pretty big swing. Yeah. And again, from a party perspective, the swing is even bigger. Uh, the new registrants from last cycle 
were plus five Republican, uh-huh. meaning Republicans won the registration battle. They got more of these new voters out. They had more intensity enthusiasm, and it obviously wasn't a very competitive state from that perspective. The new registrants in Ohio, at least looking at the women new registrants, are plus 15 Democratic. Um, plus so, uh, 15? We're, we're looking at a, a yeah, 20-point margin swing. Uh-huh. Uh, they're younger. A majority of them are under the age of 35. Uh, which is much younger than when we look at the new women registrants in uh, the 2020 cycle. And they're more likely to come out of urban areas that will be more favorable to Democrats. And so there's some reason to believe, and I would say this is a race that bears attention at this point, that Democrats could win this. In Ohio. And, you know, as I was looking at some of your other numbers uh, from a week or so ago when you had uh, run that report on the gender gap among new registrations uh, in Kansas following that uh, extraordinary defeat of that ballot initiative that you know would have allowed Republicans to ban abortion rights in Kansas, it's you sort of have a graph. You looked at several different states, Kansas, Wisconsin, Michigan, New York. It's almost seems... Uh, to me, that the larger registration gaps uh, in favor of women are in the redder states. In other words, the That's redder right. the state, the more women seem to be uh, 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 registering versus men. Am I reading that correctly? You are. Uh, you absolutely are. Uh, you know, as you said, Kansas has led the way by far with the biggest gender gap, but the number two state where women have out-registered men by the widest margin is Idaho. Uh, you know, there are some uh, swing states in there, wow. like Wisconsin is very high, but Louisiana uh-huh. is is also in the top five. Uh, Alaska is up there. Alaska is a state that actually has the largest share of uh, male population of any state. And so, so yeah, the, the pattern is not what I think most people would expect. Mm-hmm. I think when we think about these issues and we think about choice, perhaps the media has depicted it as more of a sort of base Democratic, quote, blue state issue. And clearly what we're seeing is, especially in these states where a woman's right to choose is most threatened or, or mm-hmm. has you know not only been threatened but absolutely eliminated, women are responding by going out there and registering to vote. And as we've seen in some of these elections where they've had the opportunity, voting in record numbers. Adding all of this up then, you know, I mentioned the new uh, GOP gerrymandering this year that makes 2022 and and subsequent House uh, contests this year a tough climb for Democrats, even if there is not a red wave blowout. It seems to me that uh, even if Democrats have a good year in 22, or or even just one like 2020 when uh, Joe Biden was elected, but Democrats actually lost House members, that if that happens again in 22, they will, Democrats will lose their majority in the House. Do these signals, nonetheless, according to your data, suggest that Democrats actually do have a chance to actually overcome that uh, structural disadvantage by November and somehow retain their majority in the U.S. House? It seems a heavy lift, but uh, are you able to glean anything from the numbers in that regard? Yeah, it, it's hard to believe, and, 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 and I, you know, if you asked me a few months ago, I, I never would have said this, but yes, Democrats have a chance. I, I think you put it uh, very well that uh, it's still an uphill battle. Because in 2020, as you noted, 
and Democrats lost seats but still won enough seats to have a narrow majority, Democrats won the popular vote for the House by uh, just over three points. I would estimate that for Democrats to hold on to the House, they'll have to win the popular vote by at least three to four points this time around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's tough, uh, yeah. again, especially because of these structural disadvantages, mm-hmm. uh, because of the fact that it's a, a midterm election and, and, and uh, Democrats are in control. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of structural disadvantages here. So I do think it has to be about a four-point margin, three- to four-point margin. But there's clearly a chance. And it's not – when I say a chance, we're not talking about the slimmest of margins. We're talking about a real opportunity. And when you look at the trend line – uh, and, and where things are going, that chance is increasing. But, uh, you know, for that to bear fruit for Democrats, it's going to take this trend continuing. It's going to take uh, Dobbs being an inflection point mm-hmm. in this election, where we look back and we say this election cycle, there was pre-Dobbs and there was post-Dobbs, and Dobbs is really what changed everything, and where the intensity gap uh, flipped sides, and that was what led to higher turnout among Democratic voters, among women, younger voters. That's what it's going to take, which is a real possibility, um, but still will be difficult. I got, I'm running late, um, Tom Bonnier, but I got two quick questions I want to try to get in. Uh, do you have any data to measure uh, what effect saving democracy uh, may have uh, this November. You know, Democrats have not been running on that. Uh, Ryan did a little bit in New York, as you heard. Uh, but Politico says overall Democrats have not been running on uh, on that, on the democracy issue. But new polling out this week actually finds that it is actually the top uh, plurality issue in the country, according to polling. Do you have any sense if uh, that is something that Democrats should be running on this year? I, I, I do think so. You know, you mentioned that NBC poll, and I think that's caught a lot of uh, folks in, in D.C.'s attention, mm-hmm. because I, I think a lot of people had the uh, perhaps false impression that the issue wasn't a winner. But I think when you package it with the general overall theme of Republicans being extreme, which they clearly are, mm-hmm. uh, it's an issue that will work uh, with mainstream American voters. So I, I, I do expect to see, and, and especially as you said, when we look at and we analyze how Democrats were able to hold the seat that Republicans should have picked up in mm-hmm. New York, mm-hmm. uh, I, I believe a big part of that analysis is the notion of democracy being on the ballot. Yeah, and he sort of packaged them together, that uh, the freedom of choice, uh, you know, is is about democracy and is also about abortion rights. Lastly, as I, and we talked a little bit about this, but I sort of want to underscore this. You know, I, as I mentioned, I've long been arguing that it's a mistake for Democrats to listen to any of the so-called conventional wisdom based on historical data that says they should be, you know, preparing to get thumped this November, losing both chambers, etc., but I have been ignoring, uh, advising folks to simply ignore conventional wisdom in these decidedly unconventional times. There are simply too many wild cards, too many variations from the norm to frankly be able to apply any of that history with any kind of accuracy this year. Forget about the conventional wisdom. Just go out there and fight like hell for whatever it is you happen to believe in. Am I right to issue that warning? You're 100% right. And speaking as someone who has spent the entire career working with political data and analytics, 
and the same sort of data that is used by prognosticators. I have to say the tools that we have at our disposal to predict outcomes of elections are so poorly suited to predicting outcomes in this election here because they are based on past precedent. Mm-hmm. And, and, and as we discussed earlier, there is no precedent for this. There is no parallel. And that Kansas election should have been the eye-opener that we needed. When you look at the polls, remember that every poll is based on the pollster's assessment or prediction of who's going to vote. And mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is, even the smartest analysts don't have a great sense of who's going to vote. In the end, it's in the hands of the American voter and their decision to go out and vote or not, and for whom. And and again, we just don't have a great sense of that at this point. And so the best thing we can do is go out, work as hard as we can, and and, and fight for every vote. There you go. There you, you hear it from Tom Bonier. Ignore guys like Tom Bonier. Uh, you can find his uh, his work, uh, or you can ignore it, at TargetSmart.com. You can follow them on the Twitters at TargetSmart. And, of course, you should follow uh, Tom specifically on Twitter. He is T. Bonier, that's B-O-N-I-E-R, on Twitter. He is the CEO of TargetSmart, a leading Democratic data solutions firm. Tom, really enjoyed speaking with you today. Hope you'll join us again uh, in the future as all of this moves forward in this crazy year. I'd love to. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Tom. Okay. Uh, well, because Tom was so interesting there, and I had so <laughs> many questions to ask him, we've blown through uh, our second break. True. Oh, well, sorry about that. We'll have to uh, make up for what... Uh, we had a really great C-block planned. Boy, it was... <laughs> It was so good. Folks have no idea what they have now missed out on. Well, we'll have to do it another time. Oh, but, no, no, no. Yes, uh, but I have to be—I yes. have to say that I am actually really glad to have heard from Tom Bonier because you know you've been talking about how these are really unconventional times, yeah. and and I agree with you. It's kind of like a feeling, a vibe, but it's nice to see some actual real-world data, some real-world mm-hmm. results too that are in support of this idea that you know this is not going to be a huge Republican can take over, that there's still a chance that uh, Democrats can hold the House or at least mitigate how much influence and power Republicans will have. I think it's still an uphill battle for uh, for Democrats. It's going to be all hands on deck, as I said uh, earlier in the week, even in in, states like uh, California, there are some toss-up races where that can uh, make the difference. Yeah, Republicans could be uh, replaced, but it's going to be all hands on deck for democracy. Yes. This year. We'll see what happens. Got to get out. Anyway, uh, my thanks again to uh, Tom Bonier of Target Smart, to my producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. You'll find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Bradblog. I hope to see you there. Please share everything that we do. Hope to see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1970. 
That was the day that the United Farm Workers went out on strike against California lettuce growers. The United Farm Workers had led a successful boycott against grape growers that had drawn national attention to the harsh working conditions and low pay of those who harvested our nation's food. In an effort to keep the United Farm Workers from organizing lettuce workers, some of the growers had signed contracts with the Teamsters Union. The United Farm Workers argued that these contracts did not represent the workers' best interests. As thousands of workers went on strike, Cesar Chavez called for a national boycott of all non-union lettuce. In the lead-up to the strike, an estimated 4,000 workers attended a meeting in Salinas, California. One worker, Antonio Segreto, explained the importance of the action. Rael Macaredo, voice of the Farm Worker Newsletter, reported his words, quote, Let the people and the government of the United States know that we are ready to work, but that we must have what we ask. It isn't very much. We don't ask the impossible, only that they look upon us as human beings. We have the same ambitions that they do. We have families. We have rights. Why must they continue to treat us like beasts of burden and look for a thousand ways to bring us down? That December, Cesar Chavez was jailed for leading the boycott. Putting pressure on the growers through encouraging the public to boycott non-union harvested food was a key tactic for the farm workers' movement. It impacted the bottom line of the growers and moved them to sit down at the bargaining table. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two.